0: Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For
1: regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or Affiliates. For more information, visit Acquire'sFunds.com.
2: We are going live, preparing to stream the live stream or preparing to stream live on YouTube I think that's it. I think we did it. Unbelievable! Good on All you, buddy.
0: <laughs> it's a new record.
2: It's 10:30 a.m. on the West Coast for the first time in a long time. 1:30 <laughs> p.m. on the East Coast. <laughs> We've got the Lumber King himself. He's in Colorado.
1: How are you, Mike? Coming at you live from the Elizabeth Hotel in Fort Collins, Colorado. I, I do. <laughs> I do well. I do. I do pretty well. Things are good. I missed you guys. I. When I went to Wyoming or sorry, to Montana, I was like, do I wanna keep, you know, being out there and doing this? And and I just kind of decided that yeah. it's it's <laughs> 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 I got I decided to talk to my wife a lot about it and I had this great download and I was like, you know what? I really like you guys. And if, if there's a time I told Bill, if you need me to do this, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm probably, I probably only talk about the most fatigued topics on like, you know, Twitter and like things nobody really wants to hear about anymore, but at any time you guys, oh, that's need perfect for, you for me this on. show. It's going to fit right in, <laughs> <laughs> but I am around. So, and I feel, I feel refreshed. You'd think that the time away gave me a lot of things to discuss it, that that would be factually incorrect. It did not give me a lot of things to discuss, but I, I do feel very refreshed. I'm happy to be back. And JT, how are you?
0: I'm always happy to be here. This is uh, you just—it's my highlight of the week. So it's
2: yeah. ish, which
0: is maybe a poor testament to the rest of the week, but maybe not.
2: You've uh, you've been you've been hiking.
0: I did get a really nice hike in uh, over the end of last week in the uh, Pacific Northwest, the Cascade Mountains. Beautiful, oh. big fan now. Oh, First I time those, up there.
1: I saw those pictures. Those look great. Good for you.
0: Yeah, we actually took those, too. They weren't just uh, stolen off of (laughs) Google. Stock photos (laughs) off of Google.
1: Just a reverse search. Uh, They look beautiful. How long was the hike?
0: That day, we did uh, almost 15 miles. Oh,
1: my God. Okay, that's real.
0: Yeah, and it was a bit of elevation change to get up to see that kind of view. But, um, yeah, it was good. It was really nice. Mm,
2: Very serious hike.
0: Well, you know, sometimes the best views are hard to get to.
2: Oh, oh, some wisdom there from yeah, JT.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Look out for really. his
2: book of aphorisms coming up. Yeah, out don't, in Christmas. don't think too
0: hard about that one. <laughs> That's
2: funny.
0: Bed of Procrustes, part two. <laughs>
2: um, we didn't discuss this. Ordinarily, we get together and discuss topics beforehand, but we didn't do that today. So, this is we're going to find out what everybody's topics are. Uh, you got some veggies for us today, JT?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not my normal veggies, but uh, this is going to be called uh, What Are We Thinking? And, uh, we're going to unpack a little bit of an expectation of a number that came out recently and what would the world have to do to, to make that number come true. And we can then decide whether we think that's reasonable or not.
1: I like that. Um, Mike, do you have anything? I, I I'm, I've been focused. There's a lot of, I've been focused on, but regardless of the fatigue stuff, I've been focused on the other things I've been focused on are earnings. I mean, earnings season is picking up and I think it's very interesting because, uh, I've said this before on Value After Hours. Uh, no, no one has a post-pandemic U.S. consumer playbook, and so we're all kind of the most instructive things you you see the sort of data come in, you know, the macro data come in nationally, and but what's really for me in my career, where I've spent all my time focusing, is talking to management teams and hearing what they have to say and what they're seeing on the ground, and so that we've had the bank earnings now they always come first. And so we got looks into the consumer there, which is where I obviously spend most of my time. And then we've had, uh, we had builder earnings, we had DR Horton. And of course, uh, this week, we're going to get you know more looks into that. And that's the stuff I'm sort of most focused on and can kind of talk about. And some macro stuff that just continues to confuse me, like interest rates, I don't get it. And then, you know, market reactions to things I don't always understand. But uh, for me, my my kind of topics are, you know, earnings. I'd be curious what you guys are seeing.
2: Well, let me just. My mine is uh, Einhorn's letter came out, and there's a there's an interesting quote in there, um, which I'm going to paraphrase, where he's talking about traditional. Uh, industries being starved for capital because so much capital has gone into the hotter industries, which is um, grist for our mill. We always love capital cycle theory discussions on this. I'm sure there are people on YouTube who are just like, capital cycle theory, this is what I've been looking for. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hit, smash that like button. Capital cycle theory. (laughs) I I
1: see the ones going the other way. They're like, no, no thanks. No thanks.
2: Um, should we kick it off with uh, with with the uh, earnings, uh, Mike? Because that's I think that's kind of interesting, and I
1: think it'll dovetail into into my subject. Yeah, mine so too. The, oh, okay, perfect. Well, good. So, so what what I, the first thing I was kind of paying attention to, to no surprise, I mean, you see the banks, and they've got a they've got a finger on the pulse of capital markets, obviously, and then a finger on the pulse of consumers because they all have you know very large lending books, including credit card books, and. Not surprisingly, the numbers were phenomenal. I mean, your laps are incredibly easy, but even, I, I think JP Morgan did a good job of talking about this. Is even if you look back to 2019, you've seen this, it's, it's almost like uh, the slowdown in COVID created this pig in the Python for the consumer where they sort of didn't do anything for so long. And then in, in the summer of 2020, we've now, and, I, and I'm seeing it. I mean, I'm sitting in Colorado. This is now my third vacation and, and it's not really a vacation. I'm coming to visit a house, it's, but it's like the third time I've been away. You know, and usually in a summer, I'd go away once, maybe twice. And now I've been away three times and I've got a few more coming. So there's this pig in the Python that had been created. And now it's like everybody's out, right? And everybody's out, you know, sort of yellowing is not the right word, but everybody's going a little bit nuts. And so you see Chase sort of verify not only the spend, but then they talk about the credit metrics and the health of the system and, you know, consumer balance sheets. I think we all know, but it's just good to hear it directly. Uh, They're in pretty good shape. I mean, consumers have as much money as they've had. Their balance sheets are as clean as they've been. And so I, I sort of, and when I think about the world and like what's the setup, forgetting the market setup, but like the setup for the US consumer, you have an amazing balance sheet. We have more jobs at higher rates than we can hire for. I mean, these are all things and then consumers out spending. They're not, they were spending on goods earlier in the year. They've been spending on services all summer. There's a question about what they're going to do in the fall. I have a view, we'll see. But the consumer's in great shape and this is a consumer driven economy. So it, it strikes me as like, Odd to think that with everything so accommodative and the consumer in such good shape, and there's so many jobs out there. And granted, that's not for every industry. I'm I'm thinking of like the $20, $25 an hour jobs. I can't speak to like hedge fund jobs, but the, the jobs that I'm seeing, I'm seeing postings everywhere with good benefits, et cetera. It just makes me think that like the setup is really good. I mean, you know, things are really, really good. There is this open question though of like, how is that going to play out? In the fall, and and I would say more importantly, if you're an investor, is how does it play out over the next five years, and like what do you see? Are is this new? Is this to use a Fed word, transitory? Is this so short term? Is this something that we're just going to see sort of new normals? Um, I don't think that question's been answered yet. The one other besides the banks, the data point that I really liked is I've had this view that housing is just like in sort of the the early stages of of a really strong cycle. And um, DR Horton's numbers, sort of the numbers themselves, their orders sort of confirmed that in fact, all the builders had pulled back going into the summer, which we sort of knew and they uh, you know talked about that, but their projections for 2022, they're talking about double digit volume growth. And if you, the starts number that came in for June, which surprised everybody, which was 1.64 million uh, hu- housing starts. If you start thinking about, and DR Horton's a little bit unique because they do have a pretty good lot inventory. But if you start thinking about like, wow, if you could really get double-digit volume growth and we're starting on a one six base, you really could have some good years in housing ahead. So I'm sort of following that. And then, of course, this week, we're going to hear from Wood Products guys, and then it's going to stretch when we get into August into the consumer guys. We'll hear from Curtaya and we'll hear from some of the uh, uh, building products like Home Depot and Lowe's. We'll start to report. And so we'll get that look, but it's real interesting. So far, everything you're reading in the macro is like, yes, we did see that big transition from goods to services. And also the expectation is, is that when kids go back to school, which is a question mark, by the way, with Delta, how that's going to play out. But with what we know now, when kids go back to school, what are they going to spend on? And my guess is it's going to go back to goods from services, but we'll see. You know, we'll see so far, all the earnings I've seen, I've, there's been some misses out there, but in general, God, it's been pretty good. I mean, it's, I haven't taken I haven't seen a single thing you know from anybody, fast and all anybody who reported anything where I was like, oh, that's that everybody seems to be saying things are good. You know, so we'll see. That's my when earnings you, update.
2: When you look at let us talk about lumber because that's something that you're following really closely.
1: Uh, and that's one of the, the things that's the most that- fatigued topic on Twitter right now is lumber, <laughs> but I'm happy to go into it if you want. I didn't bring it up. I want to be very clear. I did not bring you it didn't. up. You yes.
2: didn't that's right. I'm interested for my own purpose. so it had that it had that exponential ramp and then it's fallen away. And I think that uh, that that sort of seems to add some ammunition to the folks who say this is transitory, which is that's exactly what you'd expect to see. You have this as the system's getting started again, the supply demand issues are going to sort of work their way through and you're going to have these weird moves in, in prices. And now we're back sort of roughly to where we were before this all sort of kicked off. So how do you, handicap where we're going from here uh, and it doesn't have to be lumber specifically, but that, that chart
1: exists in a lot of other. Yeah. Everybody uh, uses to, it. I'm not sure it's the right thing to use if you're just looking at the broader picture, but for getting that to your point, everybody sort of looks at it and points to it. Um, so to, thoughts. Number one is you, you will not be surprised to learn that I spend an, a, a really absurd amount of my week thinking about and talking about the lumber market. I'm like, my wife's- The says technicals when, in it, right? You're looking, yeah, at, you're looking yeah. at the levels, cup so, and sauce. You know, and, and as on did Brewster's, yeah, the, not the technicals. I'm not looking at the chart, but uh, so I did Brewster's pod and we were talking about Formula One and I, just, I was like, I just love the sport. And my wife was like, you went in 2016 for never even really understanding what Formula One was. To investing in it in 2017, and by 2018, she's like, I consider you to be somewhat of an expert on the topic, and I'm like, I just—that's my, how my brain works. Somewhat. I just sort of <laughs> deep dive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Heck. don't don't tell her. She's she she thinks I'm an expert, and I'm leaving it right at that. Yeah. Uh, so I I sort of do a deep dive in it, and that's where I am in lumber. So I'm kind of happy to go through it. But the 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 nuance, so what you're describing that happened, which we all saw and got discussed by no fewer than me of this spike in lumber, it was something that has never happened in history. So in in the history of recorded lumber prices, you've never seen anything like that. And so when I saw that, and I I happened to be involved in something that was doing lumber at the time, but when I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, this is different. This is not something that... You'd have to, to, you have to, in my mind, when I see that, I'm like, I want to explain what's driving that. Like, is that a, so in some cases there are things that are non-usable commodities, like um, I'm going to jump out and say something like Bitcoin, which I know I'm going to get Shit on! sorry for saying this. But gold, you could like say it, gold. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, like gold. It, it Non-consumable have a use, commodities. Right? It doesn't have a use. So it it you, you look at it and you can say jewelry, but that's a small, it's tiny. And you can say there's industrial uses for gold, but it's tiny. It's really, people look at it as a store of value. So you can see these speculative you know, price spikes and you do see them all throughout history. It's pretty common. It's not common in lumber. And the reason it hadn't been common in lumber is because the old line of thinking for 30 years is that the mills can always produce whatever the demand is for lumber. So second, the prices start to rise, the mills crank it out, and then it just brings the price back down.
2: And you've also got the demand side too, right? Where, where well, people, they're not going to spend too much on their house. Yeah, yeah some
1: correct. That it is sort of the, the line is that high prices cure high prices, right? So as people see the price of lumber go up, that they're sensitized to that, and they say, okay, I'm not going to be able to pay the extra $10,000 or $20,000 this is going to cost my home. I'm just going to wait. Sure enough, the price goes back down. So my view or my bullish stance on lumber had been driven by watching that spike and then studying the differences between the current supply dynamic and the current demand dynamic. And I've taken the view that uh, that the, the problem was not the supply issue, the problem was the demand issue and the demand ramped very quickly and supply, and this probably won't surprise you, but... Since two thousand and five, since the the housing crisis, that's when supply peaked in mills. It's also when housing peaked, so it makes a lot of sense. Like when new homes get built, you need more mills, you need more lumber. So you saw that you know new new homes are peaking, mill and mill capacity was peaking, and then what happens? You know the housing crisis and the crash, and then mills capacity just tanks, right? And then slowly recovers with housing. But You see something really interesting. So, if you, you can get this from Wes Fraser, and um, again, I always say this. I just want to be very clear: if you let me talk, this will be an hour of me just droning on about this. <laughs> That'd be ideal. <laughs> so, the so Wes Fraser put out a really interesting chart in May, and they were showing how the ca- capacity had been keeping up with housing, which had been a very slow recovery, which we all know. But what's interesting is in 2016, capacity topped out and then started to decline. And so you saw this, and then you say, "Well, why?" And it's very specific issues happening in Canada. There was. Pine beetle issue. There's a fire issue, but really, it was the government of Canada saying we're just not going to let you cut more trees. Like that's that's just it. I could go into like like how would this problem get better? How the problem get worse? But regardless, they're just not going to let you cut as many trees as they used to let you cut. So if you want to get trees like far out areas that cost more, you can do that. But if you want these trees around here, we want we like for us we want to grow our forest back. And we want it to be sustainable. So you saw the supply. The supply coming offline has all been happening in Canada. It's not been in the in the U.S. We've been growing supply in the in the Southeast. So what I saw is I saw supply coming down, and it, it crossed where supply had come down, and demand from new home construction and repair and remodel had sort of crossed this threshold. And what initially happened when lumber started ramping is everybody, like the st- shout out to he's awesome. Everybody was like, "This is the old peak was seven hundred. This is going to pass." And everybody's like, "I'm just going to defer lumber." But what happened was it spiked in the in the early uh, sorry late summer, and it went above seven hundred. It came right back down to five six hundred, and then it just started this relentless march that just in May totally peaked out on the May contract. I think at fifteen at one point it might have been seventeen hundred. So what happened was everybody was deferring and waiting and deferring and waiting. However, all the suppliers and the builders had committed to building regardless of the price. They had already stretched themselves and said, we're going to do it regardless of the price. So what was happening was the mills were just cranking out lumber, but they couldn't crank out enough to meet the builder demand. So finally, there was this capitulation that happened and you saw it in the, in the really early summer where that the, uh, the builders and the suppliers were just like, I have to have it. I have to deliver lumber to you. I, and they found themselves short on lumber. They'd been waiting. And so really the problem, it's kind of a long-winded way of saying, the problem was there was too much demand and not enough supply to meet the demand. My personal view is that that dynamic hasn't changed. I don't know if it's going to get worse, but it hasn't changed. What has changed is that the, uh, the US consumer has gone on vacation. So, all in the spring, when Home Depot and Lowe's were seeing this move, and they'd been working off their repair and remodel assumptions from last fall and early spring, which were huge. The DIY guys were like me; I was out building bookshelves all the time and putting on additions, and you know, like that. That had taken a lot of lumber out of the system, so they bought all the lumber they could. They filled up their uh, shelves, and then when summertime came, nobody went to Home Depot. Right? Everybody went on vacation, so nobody's out. Like the the pro business is still in very good shape, but the DIY business basically went to nothing. So. When lumber rolled over initially, the belief was that it was going to be the building suppliers, the builders first sources of the world um, uh, that were going to step in and they were going to set the floor. They did step in and they set a price. The problem was that Home Depot and Lowe's haven't come back. And so the the question you have to ask yourself is, and now we know, so I said it on a podcast, A Value After Hours, I think earlier, the magic number for new housing starts is north of 1.5 million. Really, if you get north of 1.6. The supply can meet that level of demand, but right now we're seeing 1.65. We we really can't. If we sustain that, we can't do it. And then you have DR Horton. Well, that's that's a misstep, misstatement. We can do it. We just can't do it on cheap supply. We can do it on more expensive supply, but we can't do it on cheap supply. So we're seeing that number be at 1.6, and DR Horton's out seeing that number and saying we're going to grow double digits next year. Well, if DR Horton's growing double digits, I guarantee they're the biggest home builder. Everybody else is growing too. Is it double digits? I don't know, but it looks like. The builders are finding a way to make 1.6 plus the floor. So the question is, the builders now, want they are the demand. They are what's setting the floor and lumber. Well, the marginal cost in British Columbia is setting the floor and lumber, but they're setting the, the demand side. What you need is the repair and remodel to step back up. And that, that's an open question of whether that will happen. I have a... So the... the Two things, Mike. Yeah, One... Shoot.
0: I need you to tell me when it would be a good time to finally replace my fence that's falling over in the backyard <laughs> <laughs> uh, as far as lumber prices go. And then... You got to build out of
2: brick, JT. Uh, yeah. Thank you with the three little pigs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point.
0: Uh, Two, I was kind of reminded of... I, it might have been Terry Smith who said this, although I might be misattributing it, but he said something like, never buy a company that sells anything made out of metal because people can always defer the the
1: purchase the purchase yeah
0: right so if it's made out of metal it's going to last at least until they want to buy it on yep. their
1: terms yep so there there's a uh so number one the the weird dynamic inside the home center right now and i haven't checked this week because i've been gone but i checked uh a week ago inside the home center the weird dynamic is you see we see lumber prices rolling but the home centers are still pricing to what they paid Right so they're from their perspective they're like this is what i paid i take my margin boom so whatever they paid for their last order they take their margin and that's what they sell it for so if if you said as jake you said mike when do i go buy lumber i'd say well if you could get it at the current spot which is you know floating around 600 i would tell you good like that for me that would be my purchase level the problem is I think when you go to Home Depot right now, you're still working through $1,200 lumber, $1,100 lumber. So those prices, I don't think have flown through. And that's that once that gets through the system, then you'll have the reverse. You'll have a period where they're pricing based on their, you know, they're not really buying it right now. That's actually the problem. But when they step back up, whatever they pay, you'll be paying that price. So it's a long winded way of saying, like, now if you could get it at the or somewhere around spot, I'd tell you, like, that's amazing. But if, the problem is the home centers just don't have it for that price, and they're not. It, their their belief is, and at least well, wait, rather than take that, a loss, yeah, because So if you look at the the um, Joint Center for Housing Studies, it's like a, a a Harvard-based think tank that tries to model out and project what they think the repair and remodel spend will be in the United States, and it it logically and this is not really complicated math. That's why I can do it because it's really simple logic. So they're they're telling you repair and remodel spend is going to go like this, right? And so it's like bottomed out in 2020. It's going to go like this. So what do you think the highest correlation is to repair and remodel spend? It's equity in your home. So it's your home value. So, and what have home values done? Like that chart, everybody knows, right? Home values are doing this because there's a lot of demand and not enough supply. So Cash out but,
0: refinancing.
1: Yeah. And by the way, you can do that really cheaply. I'm not advocating yeah. for it, but if you wanted to yeah. and get out there and buy some lumber from Home Depot, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> uh, so so it, it correlates to home values and home equity. And, and so that the expectation is to spend a lot more plus the housing stock is pretty old. So we haven't done a lot of demo and housing has been kind of a dead place to be for 10 years. So housing is aging and then housing values are going up and that tends to drive demand for repair and remodel. So my guess is that that sort of picks back up. And so we'll see. On the metal comment, um, so the the my underpin on this whole thing is housing. It's US housing. So the bet I'm making, and we're going to find out if I'm right, the bet I'm making is that a 30-year-old So the average millennials, I believe 30 or 31 right now, you're now getting into your household formation, children, peak spend. My guess is they are not going to defer that if the price of lumber is 800 versus 500. And the one area where I could be dead wrong on this is if you saw rates spike to the point where it becomes massively unaffordable. Right now, rates are very accommodative. If you have a $20,000 bump in the cost of your home, you spread that out on a What are a conforming thirty? You're going for now, two and a half, two six. I mean, you spread. I do
0: think that uh, there's a lot of probably millennials who they'll check the spot lumber or the price of lumber before they decide whether to pull the goalie or not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is not my family situation, but if anybody else has that, I say good good partner choice. You know, if your partner says, you know what, you know, I realize that I'm 35 and I really need to start this before I turn 36 for health reasons. But I saw that lumber is up to a thousand and I just don't feel comfortable making that kind of commitment right now. So we'll just defer the family purchase. I think it's a different dynamic. That's the bet that I'm making is if it's a car and you're already getting to work, yeah. Do you really have to go buy the new car? If you're having children and you got married and you're forming a house, can you defer the house? Like probably, I just don't think it's as easy as saying like, I'm just not going to do it. I think people are going to do it. And what you see on the demand side, this is this is kind of what puts a lot of wind in my sails with this. When you see on the man's side, you talk to DR Horton. Dr. Horton says, this is the best environment. You got a CEO who's been doing this for decades. Best environment for housing I've ever seen. It, It said in his entire history of housing, he's never had a situation where that when somebody showed up with cash to buy a house, he had to tell them he had nothing for sale. And he said, Not only is that unusual and makes me sick to my stomach, uh when I I tell them, I will call them in 30 to 45 days when I release a house. And if they want it, they can have it. He said, when I call them, they still want the house. He said, now, Mm. normally if you ever did that, they would have bought another house. He said, right now they're still taking the house. He said, it's unbelievable what the demand is. And so it's like people talk about the lumber price, but I'm like, if you actually go look at the home buyer, they don't care. They just want the home. So as long as they can afford the home Rates stay accommodative, then the lumber price, I don't think is going to end up mattering that much, which is why- uh, and I, and also you hear the anecdotes of like, man, lumber's getting cheaper. So we're starting to see people, you know, sort of buy the discounted tip. And I'm like, okay, but lumber's still like 75% above where it was for the last 10 years. And now that's considered, you know, cheap. And yeah. my guess- Anchoring bias. Yeah, exactly. And so it is cheap versus the 1500, but like, you're still, you're down like 20% from the absolute peak prior to what we just saw. So in, in my mind, I'm, I'm basically- where my head shakes out on this is that the demand side is going to be strong. It's going to stay strong and the supply won't be able to catch up. And so the marginal cost of production is going to shift. And the marginal cost of production has been within a few miles of my mill getting a log. Now the marginal cost of production is either going to come from very expensive logs in BC, which are way away from the mill and the shipping cost get into the mill, or it's going to come from Finland. And either one of those means that the mills that are here and have access to supply and can run. Are likely to make more money in the next five years than they made in the last ten. At least that's the bet. So, sorry for f- the rant. Is it f-
2: so? Is the
1: is the price run
2: a little bit artificial because Canada has uh, stopped a great deal of the logging? Is that is that what's driving it?
1: Yeah, so there's there's two drivers. So Canfor, what you're referencing, Canfor actually uh, announced. I think this was a week ago or maybe a week and a half ago. Canfor announced that they're curtailing production in British Columbia, and the belief is that that's related to fires. So fires are are causing all kinds of logistical problems. Um, that to me resonates. The the what I'm talking about, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for Home Depot and Lowe's to come back and start buying. That's that's what I'm waiting for when I think the price will really have found its bottom and start going up again. The builders are are carrying their shoulder, their you know their weight on this. It's really the home centers, and so in my mind, it isn't that what people are. The reason why, at least this is my speculation, the reason why people started buying the futures on can foreclosing, is you you can craft a scenario in your mind. So futures is delivery in September, right, and delivery in November. It's not delivery in July, and it's not delivery in August. So you can craft a scenario in your mind where all of a sudden Labor Day happens kids go back to school and the guys who are DIY are like that project that I put off to build the table outside or to put up Jake's fence, the deck, all those projects, like now they are front and center. So you go back to Home Depot, you buy what they have, then Home Depot puts their order in. The problem is we've already sold to the builders and we sold more than we thought we could. And by the way, Canfor shut their mills down because of fires. And so you could see this scenario where we're now short lumber again, because we already were questioning supply and we took supply offline. Now you can ramp that back up. You just can't do it quick. So what I think is happening in futures is it's not being driven by demand from the home centers. I think it's being driven by speculation that the home centers will show back up. I mean, they don't buy until they need it. It's not like they 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 what wait until they need it. And then they show up at the mills and they say, we want it. They're not like out, at least I don't think in mass playing the futures. I think people are just speculating that they will show back up. I personally don't think that's a crazy speculation, but I'm not making that speculation. I, I just... My strong bet is it could happen after Labor Day, it could happen in the fall, it could happen next spring. Just strong view is that repair and remodel over the next five years is going to be a lot higher than it was over the last five, and it's the same on new homes. And you know, frankly, like the volatility in lumber prices, in my opinion, basically guarantees you're not going to see supply coming in new mass. It's like who wants to take the risk that that's wrong? So if you build a couple hundred million dollar mill and it doesn't work out, then you've got a real problem. So um, anyway, we'll see.
2: It's interesting just to consider it in the context of uh, Einhorn's note, which came out uh, very recently, because he, he he has a – lumber lumber's, lumber may be a special case, but his argument – and he's not talking necessarily about lumber here, but he was talking about um, capital-starved industries, and he's, he's put on a number of these positions. So I just wanted to read the line. I've got the paraf- paraphrased uh, line from before, but I thought this was a pretty good one. So he's, he, he, you know, everybody knows that einhorn has got a little bit of a bias to, uh, to sort of an Austrian economics view of the world, and maybe a capital cycle theory, um, which I do too. But I just wanted to. Uh,
0: fly That's been going wrong. I get it. <laughs>
2: That's right. <laughs> The enormous emphasis on investing in often money-losing businesses in disruptive areas like technology has left traditional industries starved for growth capital. The result is they haven't grown capacity and now they cannot meet demand. The more these value stocks are starved of capital, the higher the prices are likely to go and the longer the inflation is likely to last. JT, what do you you think about that? That's sort of a little bit more in your wheelhouse.
0: Uh, I think it's kind of... Hard to self-evident. So yeah, I mean, if <laughs> if you, this is the beauty of capitalism, is that when industries that are starved for capital um, are able to raise prices, they create profits that allow them to build more of whatever we need, and we find our way to having the right amount of supply. Typically, when prices are allowed to to find. I don't want to say equilibrium because I don't think you're ever in equilibrium. I think you're just moving around and through equilibrium. But um, And likewise, things that get over-invested in, uh, we get over-capacity. And those have to have a way of also eventually getting less capital into them and brings the that part of the system back in line with sort of the, the demand. Um, it's kind of a beautiful thing to imagine that all of the little wants and needs inside of my head, inside of your head, uh, get expressed into the real world with actual code and you know a- atoms arranged in a certain way to create all these things that we want, and so all of our consumer preferences get expressed as assets around the world uh, to to give us what we want. Um, so it's it's kind of an amazing thing to imagine that that's that's actually how it works.
1: Yeah, this is not this is on topic but off topic with your cycle theory. I had a or or you know the theory that Einhorn put out. I went to a McDonald's analyst day years ago. I think it was 2007, and the CEO of McDonald's came out and he described it as his little Ronald miracle. McDonald's? No, <laughs> although that would have been awesome, I would have appreciated that. He described it as the daily miracle that you know, for all their you know hundreds of thousands of locations that they were able to deliver as many meals. You know, just think of the logistical, like the logistics behind that, getting all these meals to all the McDonald's. They called it like the daily miracle. And it, hearing you talk about capitalism, which I, I it just capitalism just astounds me, but it. it in it, it, humbles is it it just it deliver it's the most efficient system for delivering the most amount of goods to the most amount of people as efficiently as possible I mean there's so far nothing better so, osplan did a pretty good job didn't it
0: <laughs> no, no comment.
2: Uh, <laughs> did you know that einhorn had a discussion on lumber in the uh, in his letter oh no please I tell com- me well, so he he, he he's, uh, his view is is similar to yours, but that's not where they're they're not focusing their investments um, so much in in lumber. The, the areas that they've looked at, I thought, were kind of interesting. So that they're things that are literally have been starved, or things that have been starved of capital. So they're air freight, copper, titanium dioxide, cement thermal coal and natural gas paperboard although they do have a discussion at lumber at the start but he made the point that high prices were the cure for high prices there do do you know any of those uh do you know any of those other commodities at all
1: i'm not an expert on the commodity space at all i mean i've i've been like totally immersed in what's going on in lumber, but I'm I'm not an expert on the other commodities. I would say um, on cement, I'm a little bit surprised because the aggregates business has been such a good business for a long period of time. And I realize those are two separate things, but aggregates have just been like, man, if you could own an asset and own it forever, having a monopoly on like sand and gravel in a growing region, like think Austin, Texas is one of the best possible businesses. You have a a heck of an initial capital outlay, but once you put it in there, you really can't be beat. And so I, I've, but anyway, it's a little bit off topic. But cement kind of surprised me in that discussion. But the rest, it makes sense. I mean, I can tell you for the mills, mills have not been putting capital into mills. Like they just the returns are terrible. So every time they get capital out, the only capital going into mills is going in the southeast. It's the most efficient way to make lumber is with southern yellow pine. There, these mills are being run for cash. That and that's how it's been run. And So again, you see it, you know, and I think maybe that's what he's talking about is you see it when you see demand spike, there's the the systems aren't efficient enough. They have been underinvested, not universally, but in most cases to be able to adjust to pretty dramatic changes in demand. It's an interesting theory. Oh, oh, sorry. Am I back? We lost you. We got you there.
2: What takes? Oh, I like got an internet connection is unstable. What? Is that? That's it's not that's good. It's not just so, the internet
1: connection, by the way.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the host <laughs> as well. The what, what takes longer to con- Is it harder to construct a mill or is it harder to grow a pine
1: forest? So, um, or longer rather than harder. I mean it's like with lumber it's like everything depends right so it's like very different in the southern like southeastern United States it, it can take you know 20 years I believe in there but the problem is they grow you know tall and narrow and they're really knotty and their their rings are really tight which make means they're not really usable in in uh, in a lot of dimensional just applications a little wet, guy watch it
0: Yeah just- <laughs> sorry
1: sorry <laughs> So yeah no. but but you think about like capital you're talking to build new mills but there's also capital to improve processes at existing mills and it's the same for copper right like in all of these industries and in commodity industries, you can invest in building new capacity, but you could also invest in improving the efficiency of existing capacity. So, when I invested in, in Eastman Chemical, they would talk a lot about that. Is like our production—you know—we can we can take our existing production capacity and we can grow it just organically by investing capital in business. And of course, you only do that when you think you're going to have a good return on that capital. But that's stuff that a lot of commodity business, women commodities have been in the tank for ten years. It's a lot of stuff that they just wouldn't invest in. So it, it, the theory makes sense, and it also means that. Like if they need that investment, it's one of my favorite. Um, so I believe somebody shamed me months ago because I attributed a quote to Buffett, and he said definitively it was not Buffett, and he got very offended and called me a Buffett fanboy, which I am. Um, and said you, know, said you do. So my one of my favorite Buffett quotes, and it leads to one of my favorite uh, investment theses, is that you, you can't have a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. And so, and and I, there's some things that just take time. I mean, there's just nothing. You know, if you're going to build out a an overbuilt fiber network, it's just going to take you a long time. There's nothing you can do. You can't snap your fingers. You know, Google tried. You can't snap your fingers and just have a dense fiber network. So I, with with this capital, if you've been starving a business for capital for ten years, you don't just like you can't just say, okay, like now I just here's the billion dollars I starved you, and now all of a sudden everything works well. It's like you see what happens when you you know chase money after something really really quickly. It just it's incredibly inefficient so
0: so who said that if it wasn't buffett
1: somebody told me buffett man said i said that I got, surely said that voltaire <laughs> no or- so <laughs> so so Toby, you were Buffett definitely said it, but the guy took offense. That oh, Buffett was it, didn't attribute it Yeah, he didn't attribute uh, it to somebody else. And, you know, Buffett's known for his plagiarism. So he he steals his quotes from people and doesn't. And I, and I was I mean, like, they, I'm sorry. They joke I about that. it.
0: They said, like, we would, if we had to stop and, you know, say who we actually were stealing that from, we'd never get
1: through a meeting. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, I, I quote Jake Taylor all the time and steal it from my own. That's kind of my, that's kind of my jam. Michael Scott. It's not going to take you very far. <laughs> yeah. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hey, T, do you want to have a uh, have a swing with yours?
0: I do. I'm going to uh, change my background real quick for this segment. <laughs> uh, so this is, uh, I'm calling this, what are we thinking? And this came to my attention. Um, there was a global survey of individual investors put on by this company called Natixis, I think it is. I don't know. I'm not not sure exactly what how they say that, but so they surveyed 8,550 investors in 24 countries. And- It turns out that US investors expect 17.5% returns from their equities for the long term. And uh, converse that with professionals who are telling them that they should expect something more like 6.7%. So we have a huge mismatch in professionals versus retail investors. Now, I wanted to just walk through a little bit of math that I did kind of back of the envelope of what would it take to make that 17.5% return per year materialized over 10-year period, which we'll call the long-term. So today, when I did the numbers, the price of the S&P 500 was 44.11. So let's start there. Uh, earnings per share were 131.5, which by the way, uh, are lower than December 2019's peak earnings of 147.5. So we're, we're already like on the other side of maybe of earnings potentially uh growing but forget about that um and profit margins at like 12.6% right now which is about double the the long run average but never mind all that as well um the last 10 years that that eps has been growing at a 2.3% kager so i'm going to take the last 10 years worth of growth and assume that that's going to be the same for the next 10 years, which gives you about uh, about a 25% total improvement in earnings over the next 10 years. So that would put earnings per share at about 165 in the year 2031. Okay. Well, if we are going to have the price go up at a 17.5% clip, which is what the expectation is, then we would need the price then of the S&P to go from 4,411 to 22,126, it's a 5X. That's what, you get 5X on 17 and a half for 10 years.
1: First of all, that seems totally reasonable, number one. And <laughs> second of all, you're a Debbie Downer <laughs> for even bringing that up. Take it, I can't even believe you're questioning whether that makes sense <laughs> so or not. So you're
0: telling me there's a chance. <laughs> there's a chance. Uh, so if, uh, assuming that that, what does that then mean? That that would mean the, the PE of the S&P 500 at 34 today would have to go to 134- in 2031. I will let you debate as to whether you think 134 is a reasonable amount uh, to pay. But i, Just I personally- the
2: Just tell me where the 10
1: years. Negative, negative 15. 25. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, let's I, I tackled tackle this another way too. Like let's let's say that earnings you think are let's forget about earnings. Like uh, let's look at sales. So over the last 10 years sales of the S&P 500 had grown at a 2.9% clip. Uh, So that would give you a total of 33% growth over the next 10 years. So if we project that forward, sales then uh, would turn out to be uh, 18.55 in 2031. And that same price that we're using, that means price to sales would have to go from today's current of 3.1, which is already like, it's very very high if you look at a price to sales chart um, but it have to go to 11.9 so this reminds me a little bit of Scott McNeely's what were you thinking that he did about Sun Microsystems shareholders when he told them when it was trading at 10 times price to sales uh, and this is assuming we're going to get to 11 point9 but uh, you know when you're it's trading at 10 times that's basically saying that I'm, I'm going to have to give you 100% of revenue is going out the door to you as a dividend, which means that I'm not, I have no cost of goods sold, which is not very reasonable. It means I'm not paying any taxes as a corporation, which is illegal. It means I don't pay any employees, which it's kind of hard to imagine how I'm going to deliver on that. Uh, it means there's no R&D for the future to like, keep maintaining this business. All of which, it all has to go out the door for 10, years, 10 straight years to you uh if you're if we're going to if you're gonna get your monies back on a on a 10 time price to sale. So and by the way, Sun went from five dollars a share up to sixty-four roughly and then back down to five again. So uh, <laughs> uh here's here's another way of looking at it. Um let's say that we got out to 2031 and we assume that the PE had gone back to a more normal 15x uh which you know we can have debates about whether that's a, a normal new normal um, it's we've been higher than that but anyway <clears throat> if that if we had to, we would have to have earnings grow I'm just doing the math in a different way, kind of backwards but earnings would have to grow at a twenty seven percent clip from today until twenty thirty one by the way, they've grown at a at a two percent clip but they'd have to grow at a twenty seven percent clip to get to that same earnings number that would justify a 15 PE. Uh, in the last 32 years, earnings have grown five times at a 27.4 or greater amount. And those were typically off of like a really low base of like a 2008, right? Like the year before that it was down way more. And then you get a big up year on a, on a kind of return to normal. Um, And zero times in the last 10 years has it grown at a 27.4% clip. But we're going to do that for 10 straight years, back to back to back to back to back. Um, What are we thinking?
1: (laughs) I'm not part of the 17% camp. I don't know what those people are. Can you imagine the social, like people already talk about wealth disparity for those that have a lot of capital assets versus those that don't. Can you imagine what it would look like 10 years from now if those that own stocks were up 17% compounded versus the people who didn't? Like that just that just blows my mind. I mean, we, Jake. While we're talking about this, you can go do the math. I know you're able to do that quick. Like, but they, I'm just kidding. Don't do the math. It, How it, much
2: lumber is there in a guillotine? I think that's the question. How expensive? But it are they always comes back to it. it. Always
1: comes back to lumber. It always no. It, it. I would. So, what would you say, Jake? If 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 you you know your you know mother brother or someone called you or unsophisticated, they said, "Look, I want to get involved in the market now," and I know you guys are not you know really market timers. What would you say? What expectation would you give them in terms of like return for five years, ten years, like longer term? You know, what would you tell them to expect if they if they invested you know ten thousand dollars right now?
0: Stay south of modest.
2: <laughs> would you, uh, you, you
1: think it would be positive? That's my first question.
2: I, I do not on in the index, return. but but total return, I think is positive to okay. the tune of about one point four percent at the okay. moment.
0: That's that's an exact number there, Toby. Uh, well, well, I will d- say I'll say two percent for a ten year, um, okay. and it's that's mostly going to be dividends and otherwise. Uh, my variance on that is high, and it's to the downside.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, so I, you guys I, are w- bullish. is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing yeah, like I, yeah. I look at it
2: regularly because I look at the. Yeah, and I always say this. Is, I don't know whether this assumption is reasonable or not, but this is the assumption that I make that over about a decade you you normalise, so you go back to what the long run average has been uh, for the Schiller PE. So I don't I don't like the single year measures because they're very very noisy. You can go and have a look at what the the single year PE did in. 2009, one of the best buying opportunities ever, and it said it was a uh, infinitely expensive. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the single year is a terrible measure because it it looks expensive when it should be cheap and the other way around. The shillipi is a better measure because it takes that uh, the cycle of the underlying earnings out, and so everybody who's had a look at that recently has just been like I am, kind of astonished at how expensive the Shiller is at the moment i think it was like 38 and a half last time i looked heading towards 39 peak that we've seen in the us is 44 the 1929 peak was a little bit south of where we are now so we're in very rarefied air we're sort of in we're in the last uh, 9 to 12 months i think of the uh, the 2000 ramp where it ran you know rapidly up To about 44, and then it collapsed pretty quickly thereafter. When you, if you assume that you get mean reversion over a decade, and that might not be reasonable, might be two decades, it might be one year. I don't know how long it's going to take, but over a period of time, then you get on the index, you get a negative number. It's negative to the tune of about 0.8%, and the positive number is all dividends, and so you get 1.4. So I think dividend, or maybe you get, maybe it's maybe it's under one right now. Maybe it's 0.8%. Positive, and that includes 1.4% in dividends, which is a negative index of about 0.5%. So that's where I am.
1: That makes sense. I-, I Cheery. Yeah. Very. Uh, sorry. That's a
0: little bit below 17 and a half. Toby. It's a little but bit, so. just yeah,
1: a little outside. You know I, I I think about this actually a lot. I've seen some some polls on Twitter run about it and I think about what the what the right expectation should be. and of course, you know the, the the answer is it should be low, right because then you know everybody's happy if you deliver you know something better than a very low return that you set them up with going in. So expectations should always be low. but I sort of wonder like, what should it be? And I, I, I'm I, in that camp of, I would, if you told me the over under was five, I would tell you like, I I, I would, I really struggle to take the over on that one. Like I really, I want to, because I'm very optimistic, but I struggle to take the over just based on the valuation setup. But then I also step back and I wonder like, how could that be wrong? Like what would it take? And I, I realized Jake got into that a little bit of like 27% earnings growth, but not to hit the 17%. What would it take? Because because if, if you told me right now, it actually is going to end up being ten, right? Like it's going to end up being ten. Ten for me, I'm like, that's amazing. I don't want to hold cash. If it's ten, and you tell me inflation's not going to also be ten, and, and frankly, even if it is, I don't know that I have another choice because I, I don't, I don't want to lose ten percent of my earnings power over the. So if you told me it was going to be ten, I probably would say like, that's terrific. I need to be involved. I just wonder like, what's the what would have to happen Would this? Would would we have to see GDP GDP growth finally get? north of you know four or five, you know, and maybe an uptick in inflation where you actually can, you know, really see some, some businesses that haven't been able to earn what historically they've been able to earn actually pick it up. Is that where it's gonna come from? I don't have an answer. It's this wild dynamic where I'm incredibly bullish but then you look at the world and you see where people's expectations are versus where you think reality is. And you're like, that's really bearish. <laughs> you know? like, that's really not a good, that has happened in history at, at very bad times to be involved in the market. It's a so good just, setup, but the market sort of has already discounted a good setup. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very market is, I, I think what we're deciding is potentially the market is is starting to over discount a very good setup. And so that's, that's the, um, I guess we're just saying like there isn't a solution for this other than for the market to either sit and the setup to continue to be good or the market to pull back. I don't know.
2: The assumptions in that little valuation, market level valuation thing that I was talking about, that comes from, that's John Hussman's method. I just use a different, I use the uh, the standard and pause 500. I forget what the, the precursor, it runs a long way back. It goes back to about 1850, that data. And you can look at the underlying growth. I think the market has done, the market has averaged about nine and a half percent over that full period so that's that's a reasonable like a uh like an agno not evaluation agnostic assumption for the market is probably nine and a half percent but then that feels you know, high to me it feels high. well it's probably to be fair that's probably influenced by the ending point so that that may be overestimating where it where it has got to and so you need to adjust that down that's true also for the shiller PE long run mean about 16 that's probably higher now than it has been in the past because we've spent so long trading above it it like it might go back to 15 or something if you look back far enough
0: that's gonna hurt
1: yeah that's gonna sting it's gonna sting I, I can tell you, I can tell you this. I, I'd be willing to put a lot of money that seventeen point what percent, Jake, is is not the right number for the next ten years. I'd put a lot of money against that. I don't know what the right number is, but I'd put a lot of money against that expectation. That's just that's that's just that's a lot. Even in even if you would have given me that expectation at the trough of and told me what was about to happen, I probably would have told you that's a very aggressive expectation. Like seven, you know, eighteen ish percent is is an awful lot.
2: But this is one of the problems with the Shilipy at the trough of oh nine. It only got back roughly to about its long run average, which would have been. It would have told you about nine and a half percent then, and so it's clearly exceeded that. But that's because the you're not you're not following the fundamentals, you follow the price, and so that's why if you look back over, you know, if I I can use Hussman's method to look at the forward, the expected return and what the market actually delivered over the subsequent ten years, it's a remarkably good fit to assume that you get this mean reversion over about a decade. But there are these periods of time that stand out very materially. Where the market price delivers far more than the expectation than, than that little model expected, and it's always at, at uh, notorious peaks and troughs when when
1: it when the it varies from disconnected. yeah. So with that in mind, what do you guys, how do you respond to that? Again, not, not asking you how you're doing your individual portfolios, but if, so if you're, you know, if grandma comes to you and says, here's $10,000, I want to invest, what do you do? You hold it in cash and say like, returns are going to be terrible. Let's wait for a better entry. Do you try to stagger it and say, I'm going to buy you every month for two years and I'm just going to put the 10,000 to work over time. How do you. You almost always underperform when you
2: stagger like that, but Mm -hmm. that's because most of the time the market goes up. Um. It depends. I guess it depends a little bit. It's personal, right? Depending on your regret minimization. Your yeah. For me personally, I think that you can identify stocks in the market that will deliver returns that are
1: higher than those because mm. you can undertake a valuation. That sounds crazy, right? Sounds wrong. Sounds right. I'm just hearing it. It doesn't sound correct. Go ahead. Sorry.
2: I just think you can look at like let's look at the cash flows from some of these businesses that are reasonably consistent over a period of time in the past and assume that they stay reasonably consistent into the future. You can buy that stream of cash flows at a price that gives you a reasonable return based on the amount of risk that you're taking. And then I don't really know what happens over that period of time to the to the price, but I got a reasonable I've got a reasonably good guess what happens to the underlying business, and I think if that kind of plays out, then you're going to be okay. I, I don't
1: think you get seventeen and a half percent, but I think you can do reasonably well. You just kind of blew my mind. What I heard you say was treat. It, like a business rather than a piece of paper is that where you're going with this it's like is that a different it's, it's going to be like, in my aphorism book coming
0: out at be, the end better of the year be careful Christmas. or buffett's going to steal that from you <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I've, I've i think been, we I, just had
1: some sort of breakthrough here we just had i've some had, some had no thoughts of my own since i read the first berkshire hathaway letter and about it. they're so good i know i mean i know that like i see the so, some stuff charlie says and you know age is what it is and charlie is what he is but i there's just so many good things in there like i that's why I think when the guy said you're above Buffalo family i'm like that is factually correct i mean they that i'm not going out you know and, and doing the things that he was doing and i'm not sure i'm capable of doing it but i but god when he talks it's just like man this is great stuff so
2: it ages very well. Their stuff too. Yeah. It, it, you can go back to the stuff that they were talking about in the late nineteen nineties, and that stuff holds up pretty well, I think.
1: Are you guys aware of oh, the yeah. Overcast app? That where they were... I forget the funds that um, in Incl- Incladius that put the all the the uh, meetings on as podcasts going back to ninety four. You guys, have you guys listened to this? You probably have.
2: Jake, Jake's have uh, Jake meditates with it.
0: That's true. I uh, I've been. I have this little kind of loop by my house that's a little hiking trail and i go and i take the take warren and charlie with me pretty much daily um and then i so i tell my wife i'm going on a hike with warren and
1: (laughs) he just doesn't know have fun there's some good tidbits and all that and then then there's some other things that that sort of come out over time like there was that letter i'm sure it's been on twitter a few times that he wrote to an executive i believe uh microsoft one yeah god dude there's just so it's you know, in, in, in the investment process, um, I sort of have, have evolved over time and shifted over time. And it, it kind of hit me a few years ago. It's probably, God, this might've been 10 years ago now, but it hit me that the focus should be more on having an insight, something where you, you sort of like, it's not really, a, it could be an insight into a KPI. It could be an insight into an individual. It could be an insight into A, a, a differentiated insight. Correct. Yeah. And if you read that, his insight on Microsoft at the time, now looking back, his idea that you are now taking a toll on AT&T's wires that they're putting out all the capital and you're getting all the benefit that single insight would have gotten you involved in Google Facebook i mean it would have gotten you in some losers too i'm not saying that they Did, all would didn't have didn't get winners. him into the money but uh, no, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't follow that insight. But had I been able to read that letter, and you're like, my God, like you're right. You're getting a free ride on everybody else's le-. Netflix. Perfect example. Netflix gets a free ride on Charter's rails, right? And that Charter actually had an issue with that. That was uh, when you go back to Title II under Obama. A, that was the. Big- ne- Net neutrality. Yeah, that was the big issue. And Netflix was a big proponent, obviously, of net, of net neutrality. Why? Because they're the single biggest user of these rails. And, you know, Charter and Comcast and the HSD providers are out there saying, like, look, I spent the money. Can I not? you know, I'm charging the consumer. What if we subsidize the consumer by me charging, you know, Netflix for these the rails? And of course that's not going to happen, but think about the business model and you could take it a step further. Think about Facebook's business model. You get to use somebody else's content and somebody else's rail. You don't even have to come up with anything. You just have to produce a medium that, you know, somehow increases engagement. And all of a sudden it's like free on both sides. It's that was Malone's insight on Facebook. He's like, he gets free content. I got to pay for my content. This guy's getting content for free that everybody loves
0: loves or gets angry about well
1: you know yeah no it's uh you know good with the bad jake the good with the bad that's my my theory of social media yeah did did malone buy a big chunk of facebook no of course not so malone Malone, no of course not so malone had an opportunity like in all of these things obviously and in all of these things um you're only seeing the ones that he actually you know hit on sirius xm charter etc but you know he was early to that party on social media and and he just never acted on it. It was the same. So back like long time ago when I first got invested in, in Liberty, you'd, you'd hear the stories, you know, anecdotally of like John would be walking through the halls. I'm like, well, what does he say? Like, I, I'm not there. I'm curious, like, what he says. He says he oscillates between Netflix being literally the best business idea he's ever come across or Netflix being a crazy short, and he couldn't figure out which one those. <laughs> and it just depends on the day. He's like, Reed has created the best business yeah. I've ever seen, or. Reed's totally going out of business. You know, this this stock is a short. Luckily, what's short the it. short argument? I think at the time, the short argument was that Reed was going to require so much capital, and there was so much risk in the transition to be basically becoming your own studio. So this is this is going back when when they had licensed from Stars, and that John's initial view was that Stars kind of made Netflix the platform that it is because it allowed them. Their early days very cheaply getting new subscribers by using Star's library for I think it was like $35 million a year. Like, and by the way, that's I love you, John, but that's like definitely John's fault. I mean, he never should have done that, right? That was a huge mistake. Like you never should have given that library to uh, to Netflix so cheaply. But the idea was that they were able to get some scale to the point that they could actually go out and get some capital to then create their own studio. But the risk was if you lost stars and you weren't able to create a studio that made sense. Then you you'd lose the subscribers as well, and somebody else could jump in and take them. And then, of course, they came up with their very first successful uh, self-made hit, which was the um, House uh, of Cards. House of Cards, yeah, of course. And then you know, Orange is the New Black, and you know, it was just like this very. And it, you could say it's Reed being a genius and picking the right things, but it also is a big part of it's just serendipity and luck. Like you know, you didn't. I don't know that you could have known that House of Cards was going to be as good as it was before it came out. And
0: I think the you could just small. answer it in with one word: Quibby.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there you go.
0: That was the risk.
1: <laughs> well, with Facebook too didn't work out. Cuz
2: Facebook of course wasn't the first social network. It was was MySpace before that and there was 6 degrees and there were there were a whole lot of those merely having the network effect didn't sort of deliver to you all of this money if uh, there are other people able to build their own networks
1: and consumers a- prefer those that was always the reason I never got involved. And that was a mistake. I mean, the, the, the answer was, I, I think now in hindsight, we realize the answer was you, you should have just, you know, MySpace went public, you put $10 well, in MySpace, old, you don't yeah. understand it. Yeah. And then you put, it's, it's the, it's very Peter Lynchian, right? Like Peter would say, I don't know who's going to win between A and B, but I know somebody who does win is going to make a whole lot of money. And that was that in this case, I think that was the, I think history now tells us that was the right answer. It was really easy for me to say exactly what you're saying now, which is so it was my, it was GeoCities and then MySpace and then it's gonna be Facebook. And by the way, it was Facebook and now it's being something else. But it's you know, Mark figured out why don't I just buy the other thing? You know, well, that's like I was gonna say Insta, they, you, know? you
0: you had to kinda of know that the regulatory antitrust was gonna be like a chihuahua and not a Doberman. Yeah, do you think and I made a mistake just- with that?
2: It was so small at the time. It was like a $1 billion, which that seemed like a preposterous amount of money to pay for it yeah. at the time. A billion dollars for something was basically an app with not very many users, but they could see that it might get there. And so you get there early enough, but then they give it a big boost by giving it access to Facebook's social graph.
1: Correct. Well. Yeah. And, and, and so their engagement you know, algorithms and everything that they put on it, I'm sure they made it more valuable, but I'm also sure if you're Facebook and you're making so much money I think you're more at risk for not buying that stuff, even if it doesn't work. Cause on the off chance that it does work and takes your business away from you, you're left with nothing. So I think, I think the answer is like you just buy it and you sort of buy them all, you know, and then you hope that you can protect the mothership and then grow these little ancillary assets. How much of a risk is TikTok? I don't use the TikTok. So, you know, I'm not, Yeah, neither I, do I, I, but that might I, be a generational I, thing. It very well may be. I mean, I'd say it this way. Uh, my observation is that the future is in social media and short-form content, so short-form uh, videos, quickers, Yeah, Quibi. I got this you know, idea for you. I just like. <laughs> thank you. Hey, I'll I'll take a look. Just send me your notes. <laughs> I'll take a look. in my in my imagination, a 20 year old to a 30 year old now, the people that are going to be doing all the spending and sort of driving, you know, everything in the future is those people are getting their content in small snippets, you know, and that's that's like what TikTok's built for. Is there something unique about TikTok that you know? I, I now are starting to get way away from my circle of competence. I, but I, I get the idea that people say like, well, even now, you're rather than going out and doing all these things individually, you're smarter just to go out and buy Facebook stock because it's cheap on current. I mean, it's cheap. I think it's like it's cheapish. I think learnings. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something, cheap or on, or something. It's cheap on current numbers, and you get these little options floating around. Right? You got Oculus. You, I mean, there's so many little things that they're involved in, and any one of them might be it. And by the way. Whatever trend is happening, if it's TikTok or whatever, Mark is probably in a better position to identify that and act on it than you are. So just outsource that whole decision making to Mark, and I I, I think you can actually make the same argument if you're going to go by Google. You, know, you yeah. just say like, look, you know they, they've got short form video content on YouTube. They've got that like locked down. I mean, we're on YouTube right now, so obviously. We're users of it. but We agree. Yeah, we agree. You know, And they've got maps and they've got local and they've got they still got search locked down. And, you know, and those guys are going to be able to spot. There's going to be some leakage there and some inefficiencies and some frictions. But those frictions exist today and you're paying for them today and you're still getting it at somewhat of a, a very reasonable price, especially in the market. So I sort of get that dynamic. I don't own any of them, but I, I get that people would just say, just buy the big ones and then don't even think about it. It's like, that was what I did with John and cable. It's just like, I don't even want to think about it. You know what you're doing. Like, here's my money. Go figure it out. That's smart, and that's time, folks.
2: Uh, we're off next week because I'm going to be on vacation taking the kids. Do you uh, get a vacation fishing? Just this one, one time. One okay. time. All right, just this once because it's vacation time for everybody. So, so uh, that was fun. We'll we'll uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Uh, not entirely sure what the lineup is. It it could be Mike. It could be Bill. It'll likely be Jake and I. <laughs> could be well, all I, four of us
1: i will come back anytime you guys want i love doing this it's a lot of fun so. and we love having you so yeah thanks, thanks sh- mike thanks for sharing your ideas
2: mike we'll see yeah. everybody shake uh- it up stop when the clock hits
1: 13 see one two three four cause cause cause
0: we do it cuz no one can...